Okay, I'm recording now. Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Yeah, it's great after I pranked you for half a second. Yeah, you did. You got me kind of good. It wasn't as good as your normal jokes, but you did get me for about half a second. Derek sounded really tired when he initially got on the phone today, and he was like, I'm just tired of everything, and I'm tired of this podcast, and I don't want to do it anymore, so this will be my last episode. And I'm like, for half a second, (laughs) I believe Derek for half a second. Because like, Derek be coming, I mean... (laughs) Derek does a lot of things outside of the podcast, and sometimes he be coming, and he's tired, and like sometimes I wonder, does man's need a break? Yeah, you know, because you know everybody needs a break every every once in a while, and you know if you are consistently showing mm-hmm. up and you're tired and you got a lot going on, that might be a good thing. But like, you know, a whole stoppage that uh, after that half a second of shock, I was like, oh. Derek playing jokes. Derek playing yeah, games. Yeah, so it's it's April Fool's Day, so you probably won't get this until later in, you know, later in the first week of April. But yeah, so uh, so I thought I would I would prank James, and it it worked for half a second. Um, it did work for half a second. Speaking of April, it is Autism Acceptance Month, and I just want to name that and make sure that we. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, elevate the conversation here, make sure that we center autistic individuals and their diversity, their needs, their points of view, their wishes. So much is done to the autistic community rather than uh, than following their leadership. So we should we should mm-hmm. name that. Absolutely. Thank you for naming that, Derek. That's uh, that is appreciated. That is important. That is a conversation that we definitely need to uh, lift up. And uh, we should probably come up with, uh, you know, now that the month has arrived, we should probably, uh, you know, put our people on to some uh, resources yeah. that they can uh, that they can use. Because, um, yeah. Yeah. And the one thing I would want to say, I mean, this could be a longer this could be an hours long discussion. But I think the one thing to say is for most autistic folks this is not a disease not an affliction not something to be fixed not something to be cured not something to be bred out of existence but a part of the diversity of humankind and so that is just uh that's why why it's autism acceptance month and just to to name that as something to uh, not just accept, but also appreciate and uh, and nurture and celebrate. So there is that. I also noticed that it's Autism Acceptance Month now, not not Autism Awareness right, Month. Right, it's is, not like, uh, the form- it's, it's kind of like, well, there's certain awarenesses like, oh, you need to be aware of this so that you check your skin for these things so that you, in case you have, you know, Right. It's we don't that's not exactly what it. Um, yeah, it's not a disease that we need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's get started well, right then, then, I guess. Yeah, sounds good, my friend. Uh, let's see. It is. Well, yeah, we'll go ahead and get started before we go ahead and launch into the uh, content for the week. 
Just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Exodus, uh, what is it, 14 through 17 yep, 14 this through 17. Week. Yes. And uh, the prevailing or the uh, dominant stories in here, dominant narratives are the uh, parting of the Red Sea, uh, the complaining of hunger in the wilderness and the subsequent introduction of manna to the uh, children of Israel, and also the uh, battle with the Amalekites, which is where the whole holding Moses's hands thing, uh, like that whole thing, that whole story right. is uh, present in the uh, chapter 17. I don't really have any prefatory words for uh, this whole section. I was wondering if you had anything you wanted to say just by way of introduction before we go into the content. Yeah, like part of this is a little bit disorganized, so I don't know where this should go in the, it, it could go anywhere, but I'm gonna. it's going to go now. The first thing I want to say is uh, uh, central here, we've got, of course, the the Song of the Sea, which is a very beautiful and very old poetic uh, text in in the right in the midst of this, uh, and I just want to hold that. It, well, we're going to talk about it more later, but I want to hold this in uh, in uh, in connection with this verse in Micah six four, and here's what it says. This is the New English translation. In fact. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I delivered you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. Did you notice anything interesting about that? Well, yeah. Uh, Miriam is in there. Miriam's in as there. As is Aaron as well. But yeah, especially Miriam is in yeah, there. Yeah, she is coordinated with Moses and Aaron. And I like how, and this isn't some liberal agenda. This Micah here is safely um, over 200, uh, or two, uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, safely removed from my liberal biases. And even Micah notices, I think most people date Micah to the 8th century. I'm not sure on that right now, 8th century BC. But anyway, safely a long time ago, Moses, Aaron, mm -hmm. and Miriam are singled out, or not singled out, but are coordinated, and Miriam is explicitly named as a leader of the people of Israel. So I just want mm. to, to frame that here. Um, and of course, mm -hmm. Uh, Miriam is a prophetess, or I would actually like to say she's a prophet, right? Because prophetess makes it. She's sound named like, as a prophet here. May it sounds like something else, but she is a um, one of the women prophets in the Bible. She's explicitly named as a prophet. She, we see her prophetic mm -hmm. powers also later in Numbers twelve. We'll get to that at well when we get to Numbers, um, mm -hmm. and there's that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the crossing of the sea is that, and I said this last time, it is a formational identity event for the children of Israel. This is their their ep national epic founding narrative. Uh, this, this formed them. They look back to it. It's treated as analogous to a baptism by Christian authors who are imposing that understanding on the text. But that is um, what we have here. That's probably all I need to say now. We'll get to saying some more. Th well, actually, let me just say one more thing. And I want to quote, this is from 
a, a commentary called the Africana Bible, reading Israel's scriptures from Africa and the African diaspora, edited by Hugh Page. And uh, let me just read a, a couple of paragraphs from this section on, on Exodus. Here's what it says. And this is, we talked about this. Go down Moses from last time. I'm going to recontinue some of this. Mm-hmm. Let my people go. One of the better known spirituals is a fixture in American culture. When enslaved Africans in the United States used the Exodus narrative to tell their own story, they employed a double-voiced discourse, which is not limited to a single speaker and a single time. The double-voiced discourse moves between past, present, and future using symbolic language and call and response. When Israel was in Egypt's land refers to a moment in history for Israel and the historical context of slavery in America. The Mm -hmm. time of oppression in this remix is tied to a particular location as the song identifies Egypt as the place of oppression for Israel. Line number three reminds the hearer that the people suffer not only because they are away from home, but because of the oppression in this other place. The displacement speaks to a universal imbalance, one that only the Creator God can repair. In this particular remix of the Exodus, the singer places herself alongside Moses by repeating the words of the prophet in lines 2, 4, and 8, Let my people go. If the song is sung as a call and response, the voice of Moses is not a solitary one, but a chorus, a community that calls for justice. The remix moves with ease from past to present, in and out of character, identifying with both the leader and those in need of one. Underlying these assertions is an assumed identity that the singers are, quote, my people, namely, quote, God's people. The identity as the people of God is the basis for humanity and a call to action that will end oppression. Inherent in the liberation theology of these captives were the following assumptions. The God of Israel was the creator God, ruler of all the world. As God's children, they were fully human. As God's children, that is Israel, they had every right to expect deliverance. God's deliverance was not just a spiritual one, but also political, socioeconomic, and physical. Deliverance would come because God was faithful and just. This liberation theology of the African captives is the taproot of liberation theology in its varieties of expressions. Close quote. So I love how this the sacred spiritual ends up flowing between a commemoration of the exodus in Egypt and then enslavement in America and then any future liberation that may need to be sung about. And I just love how it, this remix of all these flows together. And I just wanted to name that uh, this week as we get into the song of the sea. Hmm. The Song of the Sea, is that what we uh, refer to? uh, Is the Song of the Sea also the thing also referred to as uh, Song of Moses and Song of Miriam in uh, 15? Right, exactly, yes. All right, just making sure, just making sure. All right, cool. 
There's also another well, like Song I... of Moses in Deuteronomy too, but that's not. But okay. this is also called a Song of Moses. But anyway, so yeah, let's get into the um, uh, the crossing of the of the sea. Like I said, it's a it's a formational event. Um, it is a uh, it, it puts. See, God did something funny here because mm-hmm. why did God go through all this drama? Why didn't God just take them around the sea and just let them go to Canaan and march there without having and I think there's something interesting because Israel needed a final break from Egypt and had the Egyptian army not been killed they would have followed Israel all the way to Canaan they would have they were so desperate to be right that they didn't care what it cost them and God knew that and well I gotta do a little reset button and rigged it such that the Israelites went through on the dry sea. And this is what I never understand. Why did the Egyptians, if I were an Egyptian and I was leading the army and I said, okay, the, the leader of my enemies is holding the sea open for me and I'm going to step in it. Like I, <laughs> I wouldn't go there, right? I'm like, okay, I'm just mm-hmm. going like, to back off. I'm not going to go into the sea. But that's exactly what they did, um, and of course, issues around historicity. We don't we don't need to get there today, but um, we don't need to see God as literally slaughtering the the Egyptians. We will we will uh, we will see. But I, I just want to name that that the way it's narrated from the perspective of Israel afterward here, um, that if that the Israelites were able to have a fresh start and a clean break, that the Egyptians were no longer able to pursue them, that uh, tricky or, or trapping them in the sea was able to, to get rid of them once and for all, and they would never follow them into uh, Canaan then. So that's... Uh, okay. Um, yeah. What are, your, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, that makes sense of uh, the beginning of... Uh the beginning of chapter 14, now mm-hmm. that I think about it. Uh, let me just go ahead and read this real quick to double check, make sure I'm making sense. Da-da-da. Yeah, this is uh, this is strange. So in the beginning of 14, the Lord tells Moses to turn back and camp somewhere else. He has them change directions and then predicts what happens next. Uh, Pharaoh Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. So mm-hmm. God's judgment on Egypt, apparently at this point, is still not complete, but it, but like it's almost as if the Lord has Moses changed the direction of the Israelites so that he can further harden Pharaoh's heart and so that this final judgment can be like executed upon them. So that makes some more sense of this whole thing. But um, yeah. Like you said, the questions around uh, the slaughter of the Egyptians, uh, you, you raised this question last week about the violence that is present in this text. And we don't need to, we don't have to go there today, but uh, yeah, just mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. my only immediate thought um, after your share was that that makes sense of what God has the Israelites to do here. It's, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a move to basically execute his final judgment and in anticipation of Pharaoh's right. uh, 
Pharaoh's actions. Yeah, and I want to just say something about our attitude towards Scripture here. I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we don't let ourselves wrestle with the text. I mean, there's a part of me, the nonviolent pacifist part of me, wants to sanitize the Bible and just, just somehow get it, get this to go away, right? Get it, you know, just, just pretend it wasn't here. But that actually removes me from the wrestle. And I think there is beauty, grace, and dance, and energy, and vitality in the wrestle. To, like, wrestle with this image of God. Like, we we, may or, we, we will come out stronger if we actually wrestle with the text. And we, with we, if we wrestle with the images of God here. Because here we have God pictured as a warrior. God pictured as a fighter. God pictured as a... Uh, somewhat a, a man of war, right? That's what this song it is celebrating. A warrior. This a whole warrior is the word they use. Yeah. And so, what do we do with that? And rather than just uh, completely go all in with it, fundamentally, fundamentalistically, and agree with it exactly as it is, with you know, um, at face value, or we just distance ourselves from it and say, nope, we're not going to touch this. I think there's value in the wrestle. And that's one of the thing uh, reasons why I don't quite resonate with the Joseph Smith translation, which I have to say was done very early in his career. He was young. He was still learning a lot of stuff. He was still um, not comfortable wrestling with stuff. And he started um, some initial experiments that he never published. He never presented it to the church's scripture. He the, it, it, Never in his lifetime was this was this published um, as a whole but biblical translation. And uh, so, and this was never canonized by the church. Um, it was not part of the formation of the Utah period of our theology. Like we knew in Utah that the reorganized had it. We knew that Joseph had made this translation, but we didn't have access to it. So I think a lot of people want to lean more into... This youthful Joseph Smith at the very beginning of his career, uh, and we and he didn't live long enough to publish it. He didn't live long enough to to present it to the church. And so I think uh, a lot of us put a lot of more weight on Joseph Smith's translation than the, than the church historically has, with the exception, of course, of those portions which were canonized, the Book of Moses and the Joseph Smith Matthew. That that actually those texts became canonized. Uh, but other than that, uh, there's there's no official authority to the JST, even though it's published. Uh, but anyway, my, the long way around is to say the JST often wants to short-circuit the process of the wrestle. It takes something uncomfortable right. in the text and just makes it go away without any um, textual evidence that that's what the text originally said, without any justification. Mm-hmm. It's just like, we're going to simplify it. We're going to make it easier for people. And uh, right. sometimes we don't want to make the scriptures easier because that deprives us of the wrestle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really great is looking at our Jewish siblings and how they have wrestled with the text. And I want to talk about two of the uh, stories. Oh, I'll have to make this brief. Two of the stories that I've learned from our Jewish si- siblings. One is the story of Nachshon, and he is the... Uh, first Israelite who stepped into the waters of the Red Sea. So uh, according to this story, this Midrash, what happened was uh, before the sea was split, 
Moses said, okay, time to cross. And one dude, Nachshon, decided, okay, I'm going to get in. I'm going to step in in faith. So he stepped in into his wall, up into the, uh, up to his foot. Nothing happened. He stepped up into his knee. Nothing happened. And then he stepped up into, up to his neck and nothing happened. And like, and when it got up to his nostrils and to the point where he couldn't breathe anymore, that is when the sea split open, right? Right at the point where he no longer could breathe if he went any further, that's exactly when the miracle came. And I think for us in the LG, who are LGBT in the church and us who have joined the church, we are waiting for the amazing miracles of the Lord. And we have to step forward in faith like Nachshon. Mm. Right? We don't, we don't get it opened up for us and then we, then we step beyond the dry ground. Nachshon did not step on, on dry ground. He stepped in and it was wet. And he kept stepping in, and he he took a risk, but because he was on the side of the Lord, he actually had more faith than everyone else, and then he um, is now later remembered in the tradition. So I just wanted to name how much we are like the LGBTs. Another way we're like the LGBTs as a church, I mean, how the church is like uh, Israel is that it looks like God has let us get ourselves in, painted into a corner, right? Based on forty years of prophets and apostles apparently consistently teaching this same thing, a lot of people look at it and like there's no way back out. Like they have been so serious and so clear about this and so long-winded about it that there's no way that we can undo it without a big mess. And I think that's the right. same theory as, okay, God led us to the shore of the Red Sea. We've got the shore before us. We've got the Egyptians behind us. There's no way to go. We're, we're in a corner. But they didn't know in advance that there was this miraculous way out. And I think the same thing is true. I trust that we are in a, a shoreline situation in the church. Like, I don't know exactly how God's going to get out, get us out of this mess. But we seem to be stuck. We really seem to be stuck. But I trust that God has led us to a place that it looks like we're stuck so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed in a way that cannot be mm-hmm. denied. Like when the revelation mm-hmm. happens, when we uh, step out of this stuck corner, the church will be acknowledged. God will be acknowledged. I think that's, that's what this praise is for that we get in chapter 15. I wanted to mm. name one other, uh, um, one other thing, and this is from the Talmud from um, Sanhedrin thirty nine b. So, uh, by the way, portions of the Talmud are named by the tractate that they're found in, the page, and then which side of the page, A or B. So. Um, by page, I mean actually leaf. A leaf is the is one piece of paper with two pages on it. One side. I don't know if I want to explain what I mean by the difference between a page and a leaf. But anyway, so anyway, it's the tractate, the leaf, and which side of the leaf it's on. So here's what it says: Sanhedrin thirty nine b. As Ra- Rabbi Shemuel Bar Nachman says that Rabbi Yonatan says, What is the meaning of that which is written in the passage describing the splitting of the Red Sea? Quote, and the one came not near the other all the night. 
from Exodus 1420. At that time, the ministering angels desired to recite a song before the Holy One, blessed be he. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to them, that is to the angels, my handiwork, that is the Egyptians, are drowning in the sea and you are reciting a song before me? Isn't that interesting? So the ministering angels wanted to sing a song of celebration and the Lord stopped them saying, look, those Egyptians, that's my, that's those are the creations of my hands too. And they're drowning in mm -hmm. the sea and you want to sing songs of praise to me? So I think that is a great example of wrestling with the tradition and how even in the um, midst of this uh, in, uh, formational, like I can't exaggerate how formational this is in the identity of the Israelites. Even in the midst of this, we still have this tradition within Judaism of acknowledging the other side of it. And I think that is a very help, helpful thing. And, and like I said earlier, there's, there's this warrior language. Uh, we need to wrestle with it. We need to wrestle with God. Uh, and that's how Israel got named. Israel was renamed uh, from Jacob uh, for his wrestle with God. And he wrestled with God and prevailed. Yeah. I do want to come back to this um, idea of being painted into a corner because I do think there was something beautiful in that midrash that you uh, mm -hmm. that you cited uh, because this is one of what feels like many tests, if not you know the introductory test or study material for the rest of the test that the Israelites are going to face. The fact. The, the Lord reminds the children of Israel multiple times throughout this narrative that something along the lines of, I will do this miracle or I will do this thing that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. Mm -hmm. And at this particular moment in time, if the plagues weren't, you know, part of the lesson plan, then the Red Sea most mm -hmm. definitely was, mm -hmm. and the Red Sea was most definitely a test. This was another time where they were in a seemingly uh, insurmountable situation, yet the Lord had a way out for them. And then the Lord said the same thing again. Remember mm -hmm. that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of bondage, who parted this Red Sea, who brought you across the Red Sea on dry ground, and um, I, I feel like he's simultaneously revealing his lesson plan and mm -hmm. testing his children as he, uh, you know, as the Lord does this. There are, and what like strikes me about this is a couple of things. The, the one that I want to reference first is that between the Song of the Sea, between the end of the Song of Miriam and the Israelites, complaining there's only about four verses mm, and three mm -hmm. days yep uh there's there's a there's the obvious irony in the complaining of another seemingly insurmountable problem involving water at this point they're complaining about the bitterness of the water that they found mm -hmm. but um you know we we do this on a personal level and we do this on institutional levels as well to bring it back to, uh, to, to your point, Derek, with regard to the church. 
Uh, to keep it personal for a moment, I love journaling as a uh, spiritual practice. It's my go-to thing. And uh, I bring that up now because I believe that one of the biggest reasons we are counseled to keep journals is to remember what God has done in our lives. I believe that one of the most likely times we would doubt what the Lord can do for us is when we forget what the Lord has Mm -hmm. done. And, uh, you know, part of what it is to be a marginalized member of this faith is to take faith in the God of the Hebrew Bible, in the God of the New Testament, the God who has been able to overcome seemingly insurmountable odds and often at the last possible second yep. uh, that that uh, that that their purposes may be able to be brought to pass. Um, that's, that's wild to me. It's encouraging, but it's also wild to me. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is three days after the miracle of the Red Sea that the children of Israel are complaining about water. And uh, one of my favorite things that we do on this show, Derek, is share the scriptural and historical precedent for things we see either today or would like to see today um, and use them as a means of saying, look at what God has done in the past. Look at how God has dealt with their children in the past. Will they not do the same thing today? And I feel like God is regularly teaching that lesson to the Israelites several times. And like in just these three or four chapters, the Lord is doing Mm -hmm. that like three Mm -hmm. or four times. And uh, in my own life, I see this happening uh, a bunch lately. Just last Sunday, for example, I I listened to uh, a brother in in a church meeting talk about how he would be on board with full LGBTQ inclusion or uh, women getting the priesthood. But he doesn't think that it can happen or will happen. Um, Uh-oh. among other thoughts that I, okay. Yeah. Um, I did say some things just so you know, but, uh, among other thoughts, uh, that I had in that particular moment in time, the relevant ones I had were, uh, why would you put those limits on the God who lifted the priesthood and temple restrictions? Why would you put those limits on the God who spoke to women who made prophets of Miriam? Uh, why would you put these limits on the God who is no respecter of persons on the God who Nephi declared shows no partiality mm-hmm. and who declared all are alike unto all are alike unto God. Like, why are we so quick to put these kinds of limits on God or to suppose that God can't do mm-hmm. what God has done in the past? Why are we so quick to, doubt what God can do in similar situations, no less as the Israelites did. Yeah. I I believe that a big reason for that is uh, that we simply forget, especially in high pressure situations. I think this water purification thing that we see in, uh, in Exodus, that was a simple test for them. And uh, the Red Sea miracle was among other things, God's way of saying uh, his, you know, their lesson plan. It was God's way of saying, this is going to be on the test. Remember, water and seemingly insurmountable odds. Like, I can just see kind of God exasperatingly saying, okay, there's going to be a test coming up that involves water and insurmountable odds, and it'll be in three days, you know? And then when the time finally came, they failed because they forgot the material they learned just three days earlier. They failed to trust a God who had proven themselves trustworthy. And they'll do it again in chapter 17, when yet again, there's another water problem. And the Israelites test the Lord again, faithlessly. So uh, going back to that meeting we had on Sunday with, uh, you know, at church, a good question was asked. And I say it was good because it gave me an opportunity to have a conversation with the asker of the question that I don't think they've had before. And the question was, 
Why didn't God intervene in the priesthood ban sooner? And why is God not intervening with the LGBTQ stuff today, as long as we've been talking about that? And uh, my answer was, this is the test. Like, this is the test. We've already been given the material to study. We've already seen the relevant and related miracles. And it's material the instructor regularly reminds us is on the test, if not the whole test itself. The test being loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't think the Mm -hmm. Lord Mm -hmm. intervened immediately because we actually already had the necessary revelations to make the right choices. And we're not remembering them. All are likened to God. That was in the Book of Mormon decades before the priesthood and temple restrictions. God is no respecter of persons, and scores of similar verses were in the Bible centuries before that. Mm-hmm. Stuff like this mm-hmm. is how I know we don't be studying our scriptures for real, for real. Like This right. is just one of the biggest tests of our existence that relies on one of the most significant lessons we learn in mortality in the first and second great com- commandments, and we're failing it. We are doubting what God can do because we forget what God has done. The test, the Israelites failed three days after the Red Sea. That's the same test we're failing now. The same test that we have been preparing for pretty much since our entire existence in this church, pretty much since the founding of this faith. It has all come back to loving God and loving our neighbors, Mm -hmm. and we're failing that test right now. When it comes to, you know, obviously members of the LGBTQ community still got to work on it with members of the black community, still got to work on it with member with uh, with women in the church and other marginalized groups. We regularly fail Mm -hmm. this test. And, uh, you know, that's just something that hit me hard as I watched three times the Israelites face more or less the same test and uh, fail to remember or just doubt God because they failed to remember what God did for them in the past. Yeah, so I want to, I have a bunch of stuff to say about this now. And the first of all is, it's not just that the, so that the, the miracle at the sea did not happen just so that the Israelites would know, but the, the whole world, including the Egyptians, would know. Right. Let's look at uh, chapter 14, verse 4, and this is uh, Alter's translation. And I shall toughen Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, that I may gain glory through Pharaoh and through all his force. And the Egyptian, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And this uh, is the covenant name of the Lord, yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, which is means I am who I am. This is the queer name. This is the queer covenant name of God. I am who I am. I'm not going to be someone who I'm not, and I will be who I will be. That's... That's what queer people have to say. So that is, um, in a way, another way of of God living out into God's identity and coming out uh, in this sort of queer uh, verbal name, even to the Egyptians. I want to talk a little bit about this this grumbling here, um, because. Grumbling and complaining was, if we remember back at the beginning of Exodus, what started the whole thing. It was the cry of the Egy- of the Israelites in Egypt that went up to the Lord, and the Lord like, oh, I better go down check. I left these these children of Jacob down there. Like Jacob, you know, Joseph went to Israel. It, it, Joseph went to Egypt, and I kind of left them there for four hundred years. So hmm. it's interesting that it's the grumbling. I shouldn't call it grumbling, but it is the pouring out of the soul to God 
that was holding God accountable to God's character that set the whole exodus in motion to begin with. So I want to name that. I want to name that there's a place for grumbling. There's a place for complaining to God. There's a lot of complaint psalms in the book of Psalms. Like Job is a big – a lot of people say, well, Job didn't complain. Yeah, he did. He really did. <laughs> um, and he was counted as righteous for it because he uh, he was faithful about how he did it. But um, anyway, uh, so there's that. And let's talk about this um, this uh, this complaining it goes back to this paradox that sometimes the closet appears better. If you look at Exodus 14, verse 12, the mm-hmm. Israelites grumble and complain, what is this you have done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Isn't this the thing we mm-hmm. spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve Egypt, for it is better for us to serve Egypt than for us to die in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and really... Another thing to name, of course, is that the Egyptians didn't want to give up their privilege. They probably knew it was right, even at the sea. That's why they went into that trap. Like, I just right. don't understand. Like, especially watching it in the Prince of but Egypt you do. movie. But you do. You do understand it. Like you just said it. They didn't want to. For, they didn't want to forfeit their. They privilege. didn't want. Privilege is they a didn't heck of want a drug. to let the the Israelites go. So bad that they were going to... They didn't want to let their way of life go. Yes. Like, that's what they were letting go. They did not want to give up. They would rather die in the bottom of the sea than live hand-in-hand with a free Israel. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It's wild, bro. Yeah. Um, And so here's the other thing is, look at what what the Israelites did. They were complaining about, oh, it was better in Egypt. And what I want to say is that people from the oppressed group will always be tempted. They will always be tempted to cooperate with the oppressors for any little advantage they could get out of it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're cooperating with the oppressors, boy, you're going to be treated well. I mean, relatively well. You're not going to. You're going to be less oppressed, right? And that better than the rest of you. Yes, they might. It might be worth it for some of those people in the oppressed community. But I want everyone to be mindful of the spirit of Christ during his own temptation which we see in Matthew mm-hmm. 4 and Luke 4. He did not um, he did not succumb to it. Another thing that I wanted yeah. to name is that one day the oppression will be gone. I, one of my favorite verses in Exodus is the uh, verses 13 and 14. Right after the grumbling, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Take your station and see the Lord's deliverance that he will do for you today. For as you see the Egyptians today... You shall not see them again for all time. The Lord shall do battle mm-hmm. for you, and you, you shall keep still. I love this. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. I mean, that must have been great to hear. And I say yeah. I say the same thing. One day in the church, one day in the church, there will be a time where the Lord will say to us, the homophobia you see today, you will never see again. Never. Right? The only place for homophobia in the church is in the church history museum. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit um, about this this grumbling. Uh, let's talk about this 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 grumbling, this murmuring. Because, um, like I said, that's what set this up, um, and that's what set up in Numbers nine. I don't have time to talk about it, but when we get to the second Passover, it's we get this the whole Pesach Sheni because people were left out of the first anniversary of the Passover uh, commemoration. And they're like, yeah, we're left out. What's going to happen? And they took it to Moses, and Moses took it to the Lord. Because they complained, we got a piece of Torah that we didn't have before. 
It is beautiful. It mm-hmm. is great to complain in certain circumstances. I want to say that mm-hmm. two of the most important tools in theology are definitions and distinctions. The choice of a good definition or a good distinction can solve problems and cut through confusion. By definition, I don't mean like look this up in the dictionary. I mean the the, the clear framing of a concept in a new and robust way that clarifies these things that people may not realize. A good example of this is the definition of the word sustain. There's a whole bunch of nonsense going around about the word sustain, but when you really clarify what sustain is and what sustain is not, it be, the, um, the practice that we have of sustaining our leaders shapes up so much better and healthier and more realistic and more responsible and more in line with the scriptures. So I'm not going to talk about the definition of sustain. We'll, we'll get to that. Let's talk about this distinctions. Uh, this is something Protestant theologians have done very well, is make distinctions and say, well, this is uh, they'll 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 come up with a way of delineating two different things so that they're not confused. And Jesus taught not to judge by appearance. This is in John seven twenty four. He says, "Don't judge by appearance, but judge rightly. Um, judge with right judgment." And why am I saying this is because sometimes we don't want to lump everything under the word grumbling or murmuring, right? That gets used abusively and manipulatively against our Latter-day Saint LGBT folks when they say, well, you're just being like Laman and Lemuel. You're murmuring, blah, blah, blah. Or you're being like the, <laughs> the, the Israelites in the wilderness. Like, no, we're not. You didn't do the definitions and distinctions I was talking about because otherwise you would would know that what we're doing is exactly opposite. I think the grumbling of the... Israelites and the grumbling, grumbling of Laman and Lemuel is because they didn't know the character of God. They didn't, they didn't, they should have, but they didn't. The grumbling that we do is because we know the character of God. Don't you dare confuse mm. those two. They're not even the same thing. Like, let, let mm-hmm. me just give you some exa- um, some evidence from the Greek New Testament on this. So, for those listeners that, that may not be aware, early in the uh, centuries before the common era, the uh, Torah and and the majority uh, and the rest of the Hebrew Bible ended up being translated into Greek for the Greek speaking Jews throughout the um, diaspora, and this is called the Septuagint, and so this is the earliest translation that we have of the Hebrew Bible. And this translation gives us a lot of intertextual echoes with the New Testament because when the New Testament authors use a Greek word. In many cases, they had in mind the same Greek word as it was used in the Septuagint, especially it's if a rare word or a technical word or something like that. The word I want to talk about here is gongusmos, which means a grumbling or a murmuring. And this is the exact Greek word we have in the Septuagint translation of Exodus 16. It's used numerous times here throughout Exodus 16 for this grumbling. Um, And this is the grumbling around... Uh, the manna, especially, uh, complaining about not having having the manna. This is the same Greek word, gongusmas, that is used in a- Acts chapter 6. It says a gongusmas arose in the early church among the Greek-speaking uh, widows. 
And they complained mm. to the apostles. That's what this complaining was. And it was a righteous complaining. It was a complaining based on, I know you're apostles of the Lord and you're going to do the right thing and God's going to do the right thing. So don't let anyone um, blur this distinction. We need to make a sharp distinction between murmuring that's based on knowing the character of God, which is what I'm doing every day, and murmuring that's based on ignoring or forgetting the character of God, which is exactly what these Israelites were doing in the wilderness so many times. And we get the same word gongos mas in numbers as well. And, and another example, this is the brother of Jared. His gongos mas, his, his complaining to the Lord was based on the Lord's character. It's clear that it's based on his faith. He says, look, the plan that you made doesn't work for my people. I'm sending it back. You got to fix it. And I'm going to help work with you, God, to fix it. That is faith. That is not uh, faithlessness like Laban and Lemuel. It is faith. Um, so that's, let me just stop rambling there because I could probably uh, ramble on a lot. But let me just say, in, in closing this point is that knowing the Bible partially can cause problems because people will look at this murmuring and they'll jump to using it the way that it's always been used in the church to chop off the individuality, the necessity, the vitality, and the dignity of my people. Like anyone who's different, they'll say, oh, you're murmuring, you're grumbling, you're complaining, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I would just want to say that knowing the Bible partially can cause problems. We've got this whole Dunning-Kruger thing that knowing the Bible partially or superficially, I think, is more dangerous than not knowing the Bible at all. Because if you don't know the Bible at all, you cannot use the Bible's power in the service of your hypocrisy, in the service of your your abusive or manipulative tendencies to crush beautiful children of God. But, yeah, so knowing the Bible partially, just knowing these few chapters, you know, just this few things about murmuring, yes, you can pull these things, these murmuring things out of context. I'm sure there's going to be, I, I bet you I could find conference talks that tell people not to murmur, not to grumble, not to complain. Mm -hmm. But... Now that you know the bigger picture about the Bible, you see the other side, and we've made the distinction between different kinds of grumbling. And, and it's not even the same thing, I, I think. Um, so that's kind of what I want to want to name here, is that don't you dare let anyone uh, use these texts on murmuring or grumbling against the LGBT community or against feminists in the church or against people of color in the church or against people who are trying to do the right thing that God is doing through the Spirit moving among us. Hmm. So one more time, this distinction, the difference between uh, Laman and Lemuel or the children of Israel and LGBTQ folks is one is complaining because they don't understand the design of God and one is complaining because they do right. understand it. And we're holding God accountable to God's character, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's it's different. And so there, there is this... Um, the Song of the Sea. Let's get back to the Song of the Sea because um, I want to talk a little bit more about Miriam here because Miriam is explicitly identified as a neviah, as a, a woman prophet, prophet or, a, or a prophet. Yeah. Uh, the Hebrew language is gendered, so every noun has to be either masculine or feminine in gender. And so there is a, uh, there's a navi, a uh, male prophet, and a naviyah, uh, a, neviyah a, a female prophet. 
Um, there are other women prophets in the scriptures, uh, named, identified as that word. I love that the Talmud teaches that 49 prophets and 7 prophetesses prophesied to Israel. This is Megillah 14a. And the Talmud identifies here these 7 pr- uh, women prophets as Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. And as these come up in the... Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, we should we should talk about them. And the Hebrew Bible uh, also identifies two more as women prophets, Noadia, and then Isaiah's prophetess, who is unnamed. And Noadia, you can see in Nehemiah chapter 6, the same Hebrew word, uh, Neviah, is used here for Noadia. And some people are trying to say that Noadia is a false prophet, but but she's not identified. She does have conflict with Nehemiah, and they do have some differences, but the text doesn't actually resolve that into saying she certainly is, an, is a false prophet. And then in Isaiah 8, we have Isaiah referring to, um, to this prophetess, which appears to be his wife. Uh, we could also maybe count Judith in the Apocrypha, a leader of God's people, um, someone through whom the Lord works, but that is in the Apocrypha. We could also perhaps count Mother Eve as a prophet because the Lord spoke to her. Uh, The Lord gave her plans. The Lord um, inspired her. Uh, I I would consider Eve a prophet. Um, And then in the New Testament, we've got Anna in Luke chapter 1, the prophetess who uh, rejoiced to see um, the coming of the the baby Messiah. And then Philip's daughters in Acts chapter 21 are explicitly named uh, as prophesying. Paul, you know, people, now Paul's got problems. We've, we've, We've all known that. But Paul himself in Acts, in 1 Corinthians 11, explicitly says that women can pray publicly and prophesy publicly in the community. Like, even Paul allows women prophets. So what I'm trying to say is, if you look at this biblical evidence around here, we have had women prophets in every dispensation of the Bible. We've had, in the in the Garden of Eden, we had a woman prophet. In the period of the patriarchs, we had Sarah, a woman prophet. We had in Exodus, we had Miriam. We had Deborah in, in, the, in Judges, in the... Um, we had like uh, it, we've we've had women prof in, in the New Testament. We've had women prophets both before and after the life of Christ. So, guess what I'm saying? If we are the restored church of Jesus Christ, if we are the biblical church brought back to life, we had better have women prophets. And I joined this church because. The restoration made the Bible come alive for me. If we have had women prophets in every biblical dispensation, why not this one, right? Why isn't that restored, right? It's clear that I'm on the side, but not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's it's the Latter-day Saint thing to do. If we're, like, restoring everything, like, this this is— well, anyway, I don't know if I can't even make any sense out of this. No, it's uh, it's fine. I'll I'll take it back to my previous point, which is just to say, you know, we're failing the test. You know, we do, a lot of people aren't going to know those names you mentioned, and if they do, they may not know them 
as prophets in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, this gets to the to your brother's point that said, "Well, we it can't happen." I mean. My view is it can't not happen. We have had literally women prophets in every generation of the biblical record. If we are the restored church of the Bible, like there's no reason that we can't. Like in Christ, there's neither male nor female, as Paul says. And well, I shouldn't quote a a man to to prove that women are equal. But (laughs) what other option do I have? Like we need to Mm -hmm. either you listen to the women. Or you listen to the men who say that women are equal. Like, it, like it, it's just a mess. And uh, right. to your to that brother's point, who said, "Well, it, it, I would support it, but it just can't happen." I think it can't not happen um, as right. soon as we're ready for it. Uh, unfortunately, and this is something we learn from the Hebrew Bible: is God's children go- have their agency and mess it up. Mm-hmm. All the time, mm-hmm. and delay things all the time, right. and and it and, and it's what happens to the children of Israel. Yeah. And sometimes it appears that yes, the, though God is Almighty, sometimes God's hands are tied, and yeah, and and it's yeah. uh, we need to work on this and prepare ourselves for the. Um, and I didn't even address the Acts chapter two or Joel chapter two text that talks about um, uh, not only women but. Not only men, but women seeing visions and dreaming dreams, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a mm-hmm. prophecy of the restoration. And Miriam has this, Miriam experienced this as well. Right. Oh, yeah. The whole point of this was to talk about Miriam. So let's get back to Miriam. Like she <laughs> is a prophet. She is identified by the text as a woman prophet. Let's get to this in, in verse 21. 20 and 21. And Miriam the prophetess... Aaron's sister took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances, and Miriam sang out to them. By the way, the them there in Hebrew is masculine pearl. She's not just prophesying to the women, she's prophesying to the whole community. Sing to the Lord. That imperative is masculine plural. Sing to the Lord, for he has surged, oh surged. Horse and its rider he hurled into the sea. Like, that is, I think, so amazing. I want to quote from uh, this. Well, I don't really, I don't often quote from from this particular uh, commentary because it does come from a conservative evangelical standpoint. But here it has a very interesting note on the text. Here, this is the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, which is great for getting like the cultural and historical context that illumines some of these features of the text. And here's what, it's, here's what the commentary says, quote, The text does not reveal who composed the song. Oh, by the way, this is not the song right here I just quoted. It's the long song that we have starting in, chapter, in uh, verse 15, chapter 1. Uh, Moses uh, sings all this from, from verse 1 to verse 18 of chapter 15, and this is the commentary. Quote, the text does not reveal who composed the song, but the, st- the distinct possibility exists that it was authored by one or more women. Ancient Israelite culture seems to have developed a significant musical tradition. Rhythm, as opposed to melody, was probably the music's dominant feature, and women may have had a crucial role in creating and performing this type of music. Women are the only ones explicitly mentioned in biblical texts as using the tambourine. 
Compare verse 15, 20. Moreover, clay figurines from Iron Age Israel that depict musicians show all percussionists to be women. It also stands to reason that victory songs like the one here would come from women since they are the ones who most likely sang songs as the men returned home from battle. Whether the text intends to credit Miriam with the authorship of this song is not clear, but the evidence does point tantalizingly in that direction, close quote. I just wanted to name that as something very interesting that even our conservative Christian friends um, uh, will ha- will need to admit. He did call it tantalizing, like he... <laughs> <laughs> Even this is a little scandalized that a right. that a woman has such a prominent role in this position. Right. But you know, props to him. Shout out to mm-hmm. him. I should also name. I didn't name this earlier, but our Jewish siblings, those who pray three times a day, which is what the traditional um, obligation is, every morning in the morning prayer, which is Shacharit, uh, this song of the sea from Exodus chapter fifteen is sung. It's sung every morning, and so that is something that is. Uh, quite uh vital to the to the life of of uh our jewish siblings let me just say one oh i have so much i could say but let me talk about the um the the amalekites and so the people of amalek attacked israel at their weakest and most vulnerable so here they are they haven't really built up an army they haven't they don't have a standing army they were they were enslaved in egypt just until a week ago right and deliberately routed from other places so they don't get into trouble. Right. Yeah. And and so here they are. They're just climbing out of the pit and someone comes and, and attacks them. Like this is just completely unsportsmanlike. It's just not, not cool. Just not cool, bro. So the people of Amalek attacked Israel when they were most vulnerable, just when they were coming out of oppression. Um, and that, I think, is is just really really awful and that gets memorialized in the text in exodus 17 verse 14 here's what it says the lord said to moses write this as a memorial in the book and rehearse it in joshua's hearing for i will surely wipe out the remembrance of amalek from under heaven close quote and then we have this interesting piece of torah in deuteronomy chapter 25 where the the israelite this is very actually kind of paradoxical the israelites are commanded to forget Amalek. Isn't that interesting? They're commanded to forget the Amalekites. Like, just wipe them out from your memory, you know, get rid of them, get rid of their memory, and don't forget to do that. So here's what it says, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on your way from Egypt, how they met you along the way, and cut off all your stragglers in the rear of the march. When you were exhausted and tired, they were unafraid of God. So when the Lord your God gives you relief from all the enemies who surround you in the land he is giving you as an inheritance, you must wipe out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Do not forget. So that is so interesting. I I really see the same thing with our LGBT uh, friends here. Like we are just climbing out of oppression. Um, If you look at... 
uh, from Stonewall in, in 1969 up till today, like we're just like 2015 where we had marriage equality legalized in the United States. By the way, United States isn't the entire world. We've still got all these other countries to, right? But in the United States, we have marriage equality. And right after that, church leaders and members came after us like the Amalekites came after, right as we were just just desperately cr- climbing out of this awful pit, we got hit. We got attacked. <laughs> we got attacked. That is not cool. So we must never remember what the Amalekites did to us on that day. Never forget that we must, how am I saying this? We must remember to wipe out the memory of that awful policy. Right? Remember what they did to us as, as we were climbing out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, and never forget it. And, and we should always. Anyway, um, anyway. So yeah, let me just stop talking for right now. I've been talking for a while. <laughs> you good, man? Okay. Uh, just by way of uh, a bit of a violent pivot here, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the beginning of what appears to be a wilderness mm-hmm. school that happens in Exodus chapter sixteen. Uh, the first thing that we notice. And, uh, you know, you've already alluded to this, uh, Derek, but I do want to come back to it real quick. Um, the, the Israelites are complaining here because they miss Egypt, where they at least got some food and they're hungry. Mm-hmm. And it says they were longing after the flesh pots of Egypt. And the first thing to note here is that God throughout this journey in the wilderness will be leading them not just out of physical captivity, but spiritual and uh, mental captivity as well. And in the black community, we call this the uh, the slave mentality or the slave mindset or colonized mindset. Uh, this idea that even when we're among just our own people, just among black folks, we can still perpetuate the fruits and the harms of white supremacy against each other. Things like colorism, uh, respectability politics, uh, to- toxic masculinity, etc., it's one of the largest issues, uh, you know, that our that our siblings in the black nationalist community who advocate separatism, they got to consider because even though being physically removed from whiteness is a good idea in theory and, uh, you know, something that a health something that is healthy and any therapist would recommend in any relationship, a healthy physical separation, we're only in a better position to heal from our racial trauma and unlearn white supremacy, and to act otherwise would be short-sighted and irresponsible. But anyway, the Israelites, though physically free, they are still plagued by a slave mindset, and uh, this is evidenced by their hunger complaints and their desire to return to Egypt. Uh, And what is interesting is that God does have a solution to their problem, and this is kind of the beginning of wilderness school for them, and it comes in the form of uh, the manna from heaven, which is, for all intents and purposes, a new economy for the Israelites. There are specific distribution Mm -hmm. rules for this divine food, namely that everyone takes exactly what they need and their families, and they just take it for the day and no Mm -hmm. more. Uh, On the Sabbath, the, the day before, or sorry, on the sixth day, there's to take double so as to not collect on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And uh, those who break this rule by taking more than they need for the day, their remaining manna goes bad and becomes uh, worm infested. Uh, basically, hoarding is a big no-no. No-no. Yeah. Based on this alone, though, we can see a principle of economic justice being taught to the Israelites and to us. Uh, in the land of Egypt, wealth was accumulated through 
slavery of human beings, hoarding of resources uh, by a very few people. In fact, what I what I would really like other people to do, and uh, you know, because we don't have time, I can't fully uh, explore these questions. But the main questions I want to ask people is to first read again Genesis 41 and also Genesis 47, particularly verses 13 to 26, and read that together with Exodus 16. We see that both Joseph in Genesis and Moses in Exodus, they are confronted with a similar huge problem, the danger of a large-scale hunger crisis due to long-term food scarcity. And we want to try to understand how exactly this problem is handled by Joseph, uh, versus God and Moses in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And they're clearly clearly the two solutions and the underlying economic approaches, they're very different. So the questions I want to ask uh, primarily is, uh, what are the principles of distribution in each case? Like who gets what, who gets how much, what needs to be given in return, if anything? Also the question of what are the social effects of that distribution strategy? And uh, then finally, what are the economic and political and theological under and theologic underlying the uh, two different uh, options? Uh, just real quick to go rapid fire. The problem in both situations is the hunger. Mm-hmm. The remedy for Joseph was to uh, hoard all the food, uh, get a monopoly on the food, plus the money, plus the land, uh, plus the livestock, and plus the actual lives of the people. Like basically... Joseph ends up, on behalf of Pharaoh, owning all of Egypt, including the people and their land and their livestock. And then to to fix that problem, uh, he ends up selling the stuff or, you know, particularly selling the food back to the Egyptians. Um, So basically, distribution is according to financial means. And whereas in this uh, manna economy, the distribution is according to need rather than uh, greed. Mm-hmm. There's no hoarding, no accumulation allowed. And then the rationale in the money economy with Joseph was food for profit, grain for gain, whereas over here in the men economy, we got food for life, food as a human right for all. And the result is that everybody stays on an equal and a free egalitarian model. It says in the scriptures, mm-hmm. everybody has according to their own needs, Whereas with Joseph's economy, it was all about the result was maximum power and wealth centralized in the Pharaoh. He held the means, the, 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 the resources and the means of production over all of Egypt and ended up enslaving, you know, everybody. So we got some questions that we want to, you know, answer with regard to how God is conducting this new economy, this manna economy. And we're going to see more of how God wants to uh manage the resources of the Israelites as we get into how land is uh distributed into what the Sabbath year is for what the jubilee is for we're we're going to get to all that as we continue throughout the books of uh, Moses but basically there is a highlight of what this new economy what this new way of living is supposed to do for the Israelites and how it is centered on making sure that everybody has what what they need. Everybody has their needs met and uh, nobody is in control of all the resources and the means of production of all the resources. So there is something new being taught here that is in stark contrast to Egypt. The Lord is beginning to create a sort of anti-Egypt 
in uh, in the wilderness, and he is not only leading the uh, Israelites out of bondage, God is leading the Israelites into a new way of life where everybody is valued and where everybody has their needs uh, met. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's all I'll say for now, it's just for the sake of time. I just wanted to say one thing real quick about that. And there's I, this intertextual echo with the New Testament. So in my edition of the uh, Greek New Testament, the Nestle Oland, there is an index in the back that takes every verse of the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint and names where in the New Testament it's quoted or alluded to. And that is very helpful because there's a lot of places where you have the the uh, the, the other direction where you'll you'll find something quoted in the New Testament and there's a little give me a little footnote and it says where it comes from. But this does the other way. So I can look up some some verse in the Hebrew Bible and see every place in the New Testament where it is cited. So verse Exodus 16:8 I'm sorry, Exodus 16:18 is quoted only one time in the entire New Testament, and that's in the famous passage on generosity and equality in 2 Corinthians 8, chapters 8 and 9. And here's what 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15 says. For I do not say this, so there would be relief for others and suffering for you, but as a matter of equality. At the present time, your abundance will meet their need so that one day their abundance may also meet your need, and thus there may be equality. As it is written, quote, The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little, close quote. And actually close both quotes, right? So Paul is quoting uh, Exodus sixteen eighteen about the manna, that no matter how much they collected, when they looked, in the end, Everyone had exactly what they needed. No one had too much and no one had too little. That's how things are supposed to be in the church. And interestingly, the Greek word isates, which means equality, appears only three times in the Greek New Testament. Two of them are right here in this text about financial equality. And then one is in Colossians 4 verse 1. And this is a pretty infamous text about that... um, that masters must treat their enslaved individuals with isotes, with equality. Like, what does that mean? Could that be a proto-abolitionist text, or could it be interpreted to reinforce and re-inscribe the, ex- the ongoing existing of enslavement? And so that's a conversation for another time. But you can see how the equality isn't the equality of opportunity. It is the equality of actual need, actual result. Everyone gets what they need. Everyone, no one has more than they need or less than they need. People are equal according to what they need, not this equal opportunity stuff that never actually is an equal opportunity. So that is what the manna has to do with Paul and what that has to do with us today. Hmm. Is there anything else we got to get to? Other than there's this talk about self-reliance, this whole manna thing, that's the opposite (laughs) of self-reliance. That's God-reliance. And, um, yeah, self-reliance is not a biblical term. 
Nah. And I, I get that there's principles of self-reliance that are good, that are helpful. But if it's ever used in a way that's abusive and say, well, you don't have what you have because you're not self-reliant, that they're probably missing larger structural or systemic things, larger things around disability. There's just a bunch of stuff they're missing if you blame poverty on the poor people, which is exactly what King Benjamin tells us not to do. Correct. Correct. Anyway, I better stop talking or else I'll keep talking. <laughs> All right. Sounds good, my friend. Anyway, before we go ahead and wrap things up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, uh, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. Uh, the second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, uh, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? Uh, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. You can also find us at uh, on Facebook by searching for us. Indeed. Also want to offer a special thanks to uh, David Doyle, who's been editing our transcripts, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with social media, and of course the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, uh, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the uh, Faithful Feminist episode, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study guides or study helps, and a link to the outlines will be in the uh, show notes, as well as the uh, uh, drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the uh, the transcripts. Anything else we need to put people on to? Uh, events or stuff we got going on? Nope, that's it. Very good. Thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Until we meet again, bye-bye everyone. <laughs>